realize I'm not very bright. So a lot of things to, so I hope I don't fail here. Now let me see, I'm gonna, oh, <laughs> see there we go, I might have to turn it on. Step one, I think it's on. Oh, no, it isn't, there we are. Let's see what happens here. Ah, perfect, all right. Well, I am, uh, first of all, I'm really excited and happy to be here. My wife here along with me as well. I think I echo the same thoughts that uh, that she is feeling. Um, <coughs> I had just a few things in preparation here for the start. Well, first of all, I came in here and I just went into the washroom and I met somebody and I haven't seen him here, but um, this was my first introduction to New Life Bible Chapel, the first person who I assume was a member, because he was about this high though, and so we had a little conversation as we were washing our hands, and uh, I asked him what he did, <laughs> and he was like, nothing, he said, but he looked quite happy about that, like uh, some people, you know, what do you do, nothing, they're kind of like, well, a little ashamed or something, but uh, Suddenly, I think it maybe came to his attention for the first time just how great a life he was living. So uh, I haven't seen where he went there, but uh, oh, for the days when nothing was an acceptable vocation and uh, purpose in life. So uh, it's kind of funny. We start out that way, and we kind of hope to get to the end where we can retire and kind of do nothing again, eh? And then there's the great strain in between to try and get there anyways. Um, Yes, I am really happy to be here. I think we go till one o'clock and uh, um, <clears throat> just looking over my notes here, I hope I haven't got too much material, so I better get into it fairly quickly. But uh, a couple things. Number one, I, uh, the message, the notes for the message have gone onto a, a thumb drive and it's up here on the screen. And I'm gonna try and do that and sort of keep track here along with my computer. But I'm sure there'll be times when I'll be turning one way or another. So I hope that won't be distracting to you and I, I hope I can sort of keep myself synced up or I'll start talking about things and you'll be looking up there and thinking, I really don't think he's talking about what he thinks he's talking about. So that'll be something to look forward to <coughs> when we get confused there and get a little bit off track. But I'll do my best to sort of keep along with that. Um, the other thing that I just wanted to mention, I see that there are some, some young people here and I won't take very long with this, but in the summer, uh, around the middle of August, <coughs> we have a uh, two-week, I don't know what you'd call it really, sort of a Bible conference, I suppose, um, a Bible camp may be a better way to term it, but it's held at, uh, the first week anyways, is held at Wilfrid Laurier University in Waterloo, and the first week is um, a lot of Bible study and uh, sort of the focus of the ministry is, is a little bit on people who are a little bit younger college and career age level people, that's, uh, you have to be 18 years old to come. And the morning is filled up with sessions. We have some really good uh, speakers who are coming. <coughs> there's a gentleman coming here from uh, Oakville, and then there's another brother coming from Ireland to speak to us. So even if you don't really enjoy what he says, listening to an Irish accent isn't a bad thing. So um, I'm sure that would be a blessing by the end of the week. Uh, we also... <coughs> <coughs> One of the reasons why uh, Upward Bound was started all those years ago was just a sense that um, God's people had lost a little bit of a connection with how to study their Bibles. And, um, you know, with everything in life, we need someone to teach us, don't we? And so uh, when was the last time you actually went somewhere and had someone run through a course of, of sort of just some basic ways to approach the scriptures and to put things together and... Uh, dig things out. So that's actually a part of what we do as well. We have uh, sessions uh, over the course of the week and there's Bible study projects that go along with it. So, you know, I think you can tell from what I'm saying that there's a lot of, I uh, hopefully very interesting things going on. We also have a lot of uh, social events <coughs> that we try and do as well. We, um, uh, this is something to be worth coming if you're here from the city here in Mississauga. Uh, I have a cousin who lives probably about an hour and a half from here, and he has a farm, 100-acre farm with a swimming pool and sheep and everything all else. And so we go up there for an afternoon and uh, go swimming. He takes us on a hayride. You can kind of see the farm. We have a campfire and a testimony time. So there's lots of interesting things like that. And we've had great times through the years. It's been going for 21 years now. And um, 
I would say if there's one word that maybe sums it all up, and it may not be the word that you think is coming, but it's fellowship. Um, because there have been some great friendships that have started through the years with that, relationships that have begun. And uh, I think it's just nice to get together with people from all over the place and feel encouraged. And particularly for younger people, I think there's a certain sense of iron sharpening iron when we get together with people like that. And so uh, it is, um, I think, usually a really good time. And the other thing is, we get people from all over the place coming. So it would be a good idea to come and really make good friends with that person from Jamaica so that uh, when February rolls around, you can maybe go down and visit them and stay for free. And uh, so there, you know, that alone will probably save you the price of uh, the two-week camp. So the second week we go camping up into Algonquin Park. We go canoeing for uh, six days. And it really is a lot of fun too. It's a um, and if you can't come for both weeks, that's totally fine. You can either choose to come for one week, the first week, or the second week. Um, but the second week we go canoeing, and it's obviously a whole different kind of vibe uh, when you go out camping and things like that. But it, it, again, it's, it's a wonderful time. We, we have some Bible studies out there, testimony time, singing. Uh, we go about uh, hmm, 45 or 50 kilometers into Algonquin Park, so it's no small effort. And when you come back, you'll feel like you've done something uh, for sure. <coughs> but we just have an absolutely... Uh, an absolutely wonderful time. There was a friend of mine who came uh, from Cairo, if you can imagine, uh, came here to go to school and now he's living here and he actually came on Upward Bound one year and I thought I would just tell you this short little story <coughs> to verify that you would have a really good time out there. So he came from Cairo and he was of course overwhelmed to suddenly be out of that city of millions and to be dropped into Algonquin Park, you know, and uh, English was not his first language, Arabic was his first language, and um, <coughs> I'm sure there's many people here with dual languages, but one thing that you find is sometimes things don't translate directly into something else, and so you're kind of struggling to get it across, <coughs> and a lot of times emotions are something that don't translate very easily across, and uh, so the first day we got out there, you know, here's this guy dropped into uh, the Canadian wilderness, canoeing his way miles and miles through there, and we got to this beautiful waterfall, and we were sitting in the waterfall together, and he looked over at me, and the water was kind of running over top of us, and he looked over at me, and he said, Sandy, Sandy, this is the greatest day of my life. And I'm like, wow, well, that's, I'm really happy to hear that. That's, uh, that's good. Underneath this waterfall maybe isn't my greatest day, but uh, if that's what you're feeling, that's great. So then we were out in the middle of the lake, and we've been paddling all day and it still seemed that we were a bit of a way to our campsite and my canoe came over to his and he said sandy sandy i wish i could die <laughs> i thought wow that's some mixed emotions on this trip so um anyways come along and some days it'll be the greatest day of your life other days you'll wish to die and uh hopefully in the end it will all sort of average out to uh, greatest day of your life uh, all right, well, let's get a look here. And first of all, I think maybe, well, let's wait for a minute. And here I've lost my screen, but <coughs> I will turn a little bit. I hope it won't be distracting. We're going to look today at the subject of finding joy in the Christian life. The introduction that our brother gave for me is that um, uh, when I speak, <coughs> um, one of the things that I really enjoy is trying to trying to communicate something that is practical for us, something that we can take and uh, go out of this gathering here on Sunday and put it into practice during the week and feel encouraged and feel a little bit of direction maybe. I don't know how you feel sometimes, but I often come on a Sunday morning or on a Sunday somewhere and I feel very needy and I really want God to speak to me. And um, I hope that, well, I know, I know that God wants to speak this morning. Um, all he asks of us is that we would have the courage to have our ears open and listen. That's it. But you know, listening actively, actively listening and engaging with what God and his word and his spirit are saying to us when we come together actually is something that takes a fair bit of courage. Because sometimes when we listen, God's Holy Spirit will put his finger on something that we need to address. And um, the other thing is, if we listen, God wants us and anticipates that we will also take what we listen to and put it into practical use in our life. Uh, James prayed that we would not be hearers of the word only, but doers. 
And he said, if you're a hearer only and not a doer, do you know what it says in there? People don't quote this part of the verse. But it says, deceiving yourselves. Now that's interesting, isn't it? That he would tie that in with that. That if we think that coming here, listening, maybe going out and feeling good, hopefully, about being here, that if we don't take that and put it into active use in our life, we're deceiving ourselves about what's happening in our Christian life. So anyways, let's push our way through here and see uh, what we can find today. Now, first of all, this whole idea about joy in the Christian life, I think this is something that probably all people are looking for and craving in their life. Um, I've put a little excerpt here from the uh, American Declaration of Independence, and it says, <clears throat> the preamble to the Declaration of Independence says that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Life, wow, that sounds profound. Liberty, whoa, that's a good one too but the pursuit of happiness as well. And so that tells us that God has created us with this innate desire to find happiness in life. And so you find people going out and they're pursuing happiness. They want to feel positive, whatever that happiness might be defined as in their life. I think when it comes to Christianity, God has called us to something even more than happiness. He's called us to joy. Because happiness, I think, is somewhat dependent upon circumstances. It's, you see the word happens is tied right in there with the word, isn't it? But joy is something that is independent of the circumstances of life. Um, James chapter 1, again, James tells us that we can rejoice even in times of tribulation and in times of sorrow. And Christians can rejoice even perhaps as the tears are rolling down their cheeks. But the question is, do we? find this in our lives because, uh, well, anyways, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but if we don't get enough time to finish this message, let me tell you one thing that I believe very strongly from the Word of God. God is a joyful God and He wants His people to be joyful people. I really believe that. God is not sitting there in His heaven and taking delight to take His big, uh, you know, judgmental stick and whack you over the head just when life seems to be getting a little bit better for you. I think God takes great joy when he sees his people rejoicing and enjoying life. That doesn't mean that there aren't hard days and difficult days, but it does mean that God wants his people to have a spirit of joy. Now we're going to look in the Gospel of John in order to investigate this a little bit further. And uh, one of the things that I just want to briefly touch on as we go through here is, we're going to look specifically at a story in the Gospel of John. If you have a bulletin or you saw it up here on the screen, where you, you can see that we're going to look at John chapter two. And we're going to look at the story of the little miracle where Jesus turned the water into wine. But before we do that, I wanted to just draw back for a minute <coughs> and sort of talk a little bit about how this story fits in to the entire structure of the Gospel of John. I don't want to take a lot of time to do it this morning, but I think it's kind of important to understand the importance of the story and also how it fits into the general narrative of the Gospel of John. Plus, there's something I guess I just wanted to challenge us as God's people this morning is, I find today, and I, I don't know whether you have the same experience, that a lot of times as Christians today, and when you look at what Christians are doing in relationship to the Bible, oftentimes we're focusing in on a very short little passage. Sometimes it's just a, a, a one verse. Oftentimes there's whole books and almost Christian movements that get started on one verse or one little phrase from the Word of God, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's how the Word of God works. It's wonderful in how it just kind of reaches out and touches us where we are. And that's a lot of the reason why I think we resonate maybe on a particular passage or a particular verse. But as I think back uh, earlier on in my life, it struck me that people, God's people, um, you know, 30, 40 years ago, um, that there was a little more of a sense of not only focusing on the microscope, as you see on the screen there, but of drawing back and sort of seeing the overall structure 
of God's Word and of the books in God's Word. And I, I think sometimes that that is lost today because that's a challenging thing to do, to sort of interact with a book. And maybe you start with a small one, you know, maybe like one of the epistles that are three or four chapters, or maybe you pick one that's only one chapter and you sort of say, well, what is this book all about? And that will really make us engage with the Word of God. And it'll make us realize that there are more passages in the scripture than just sort of the common ones that we visit quite frequently, don't we? We can find lots of things. And I find when I look at the Word of God and I see the structure of the Word of God and I realize that the Holy Spirit of God was behind it, I find that kind of thrilling how he's put the whole thing together. And you look at it and you say to yourself, there is no book that is like this book. Such an amazing book from the, 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 the shortest little clause that reaches out and touches my heart, but also to look at it in a big way and say, wow, only God could have put something so wonderful together as this. So let's quickly just kind of delve into that for a minute, and then we'll zip back over, and you'll see how the whole thing is going to tie together here. Uh, oop, I need to press this too, because see, we almost had a moment there. Here is one of the key passages. You know, if you... Um, you maybe go and listen to someone and they say, well, we're going to study the book of Philippians over the course of this weekend. And they'll probably get off, <coughs> begin at the start and say, well, the book of Philippians is about joy because a lot of times in here that it mentions joy. And so for a lot of the books in the Bible, you really have to engage in it and sort of say, well, <coughs> what is it that this book is all about? That's why I really like John's gospel because he actually tells us what it's about. So that's kind of a relief, isn't it? But he waits till the end of the book, so he kind of makes us work at it maybe a little bit. I don't know, at least the first time through. But here clearly is a very important little passage from John's gospel, and it's found in John chapter 20, <coughs> kind of near the end of the book. There's only one chapter after this one. And this is what it says. We listen carefully. Only God could pack as much information into a verse as, as he packs, as is packed into this one. Truly, Jesus did many other things signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah literally the anointed one the Son of God and that believing or holding to the faith you may have life in his name. Well, I don't know about you, but I want to read a book that's going to talk about something like that. There are some amazing truths in there. And there's a lot of things we could talk about, but we're only going to focus in on a couple of them here. And the first one is, we want to think for a minute about this word signs that is used in here. Semion is the word that um, John uses actually, or is the original word. But it literally is translated signs. And if you, you know, think about the Word of God and some of the different ways that God talks about miracles, you'll find that in some cases, the miraculous things that Jesus did were referred to as miracles. And so, the, the, you know, the focus there is on the heavenly power that was behind them, I think. Um, sometimes they're referred to as wonders, not quite as frequently, but they are referred to as wonders sometimes. And I think that that is focusing or emphasizing the earthly reaction to these wonderful events that happen. So miracles makes us think about the heavenly power that was behind it. Wonders makes us think about the reaction that people had as they looked on and said, wow, this, this is just so far out of the realm of human experience. And they were filled with wonder. But this word that is used here is the word signs. And it lets us know that these miracles have as well a deeper meaning that we should be thinking about. And so uh, here's a little sign from where we live. Uh, uh, brother mentioned that we're from Alora. Some of you who've maybe drifted up that way sometime for a little Saturday drive or something like that know that Alora is a beautiful little town and um, that one of the features of Alora is this wonderful gorge that is there. And it's, it's a very, very beautiful place. You can swim there and uh, all manner of different things, hike, it's a great spot. So, um, boy, I need to apply for a $10 bonus for being such a good tour guide for Alora, or a <laughs> promoter of Alora here. But anyways, here's a little sign that is here. 
Now, on one level, we can engage with this sign, can't we? And I don't know whether you have a hobby of looking at signs. I've never really met too many people like that. But in the world in which we live, you, you soon discover there's somebody for everything. But here is this sign. And so you can say to yourself, well, I don't know. That's interesting. They chose brown as the background, and they've got yellow in the front. And um, they've got some interesting icons that they've chosen down along the side there. And then there's another one at the bottom there that's clearly a different color for the lettering and for the background and all of these type of things. And so you could sort of step back and say, you know what, that is an amazing sign. And there's a lot to learn about that sign. And look at the piece of wood that they used. And I wonder what kind of paint they used. And all those things are valid. But guess what? If you don't get the purpose of the sign, you're going to stand there sweating on a 30-degree day in Alora, and you're going to miss out on that fabulous splash pad. Because the sign is performing a function to point you on to something else that is actually going to be beyond the sign, if you will. And I think that's what we're seeing when the Scriptures and John talks about the miracles that Jesus is doing and says that you can certainly look at them as stories in and of themselves and appreciate the story, but don't forget that there is a deeper meaning here. These signs are pointing on to something else, and you will find and enjoy the richness of that when you realize it and engage with it on that level. So, Let's see what else we have in this verse. Number one, um, it says that there were many other signs not written in this book, and I'm gonna skip a few things because I can see my time is going here. Number one, John wants us to know that the signs that he has recorded in his gospel, being a little bit less in number, does not mean that Jesus didn't do other things as well. So he wants us to know there's no contradiction with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Matthew records 20 specific miracles. You can see Mark is 18, Luke is 20. But when we come to the Gospel of John, we find that the number is much lower. Only seven are recorded before the Lord Jesus Christ goes to the cross. And then I also think that the resurrection of Christ is the eighth sign of John's Gospel. So we find a maximum of eight miracles being specifically referred to in John. So it's quite limited. We may say, well, does this contradict? No, John says, don't worry. So what John has done by the Spirit of God is the Spirit of God has come in and of all the miracles that Jesus did, and we know that there were more because even the other Gospels had more, and even John says that there were more. But the Spirit of God chose seven of them. And they were chosen specifically out of all the things. You, at the end of the book, we find John saying, you know what? If all the things had been written about this Lord Jesus that could have or should have been written, he said, I suppose the world itself could not have contained all of the books. Now that's a staggering statement, but I actually believe it's true. Out of all the things that Jesus did, John chooses seven miracles by the Spirit, of course. When I say John, I'm, it's God who wrote this book, isn't it? So John chooses seven. So they're specifically chosen for a purpose. What is that purpose? Well, the first part of the purpose focuses on a person. He says, I want you to believe some truths regarding a person. And so he says, I want you to believe that Jesus, and he uses his earthly name, the name that speaks to us of his humanity that this man, Jesus, who, you know, was a man, that there was more to him, that he is the Christ, the anointed one. 
that he was the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies, that he was the one who was able to bring the three great anointed offices of the Old Testament together in himself, something that no one else had ever done or could do or even was allowed to do by God. So he said, in this man you will find God's perfect prophet. You will find God's perfect priest. You will find God's perfect king. And we could easily stop right here and think of the value of those three offices. Not back then, but now, today. So there's plenty of ways that you could go out from this message and think of all kinds of different things. But he says, I also want you to realize that there's something else about him that these miracles are going to teach you or that the Gospel of John is going to teach you, is that not only is Jesus the Christ, but He is the Son of God. The Son of God. So these miracles are going to point to some wonderful things that could only be accomplished by deity. That's an important part of what this book is about. Then he says, there is also a practical element to this book. And this is what I think we all love and appreciate about the Word of God and about God Himself, is that God never presents things in a vacuum. It's not just information for the sake of academia and you know, feeling like we have all this knowledge in our mind. God wants us to put things into practice. He wants us to have success in our Christian life. And so the next part of the verse refers to that very thing. He says, and that believing, number one, that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, or as you see at the top of the page there, or that, or holding to your faith, or carrying on with your belief, and it strikes me that when you become a child of God, you accept these great truths about the person of Christ, that He is God's Messiah, God's anointed one, that He is the Son of God. But then as you go forward, that's where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? This is where we find this afternoon in our verse and tomorrow at work or school or interacting with your wife or husband or children or work or whatever it is. He says that carrying on with your belief, you might have life. Life. Through His name. He says, as you look at this book, I want you to have life. And that wonderful, wonderful verse that it's at the heart of John's gospel. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. God wants us to have an abundant life. And John says that's what this book is about. And the structure of the book are these wonderful miracles that sort of make up the backbone of John's book. And so as we come to the Gospel of John, we need to pay particular attention to these miracles and what they are pointing to regarding these things. And we see quite frequently in John's Gospel that the miracle branches out beyond the actual physical situation, don't we? In John chapter 6, we have the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And all the rest of John chapter 6 is about Jesus as the true bread from heaven, isn't it? So God starts with the miracle, and then out he goes into something more. So there's clearly more to the book than these miracles, but I think it's worth for us to sit down and think that God himself is telling us that this is how the whole thing was structured. So what are the seven signs, or eight I guess, seven signs in John's Gospel? Well there they are for you and you can see the first one we're going to look at in just a minute. There was <coughs> water that was turned to wine um, in Cana of Galilee and that's the first miracle that Jesus did. And then we find at the end of chapter 4 <coughs> that there was a nobleman's son that was healed. And so this man 
a man of some power and, and uh, some repute comes to the Lord Jesus and uh, his son is going to die. And so he comes to the Lord and is seeking for healing. Now it's interesting, once you start to dig into these miracles, you are going to stand back and you'll say, wow, that's kind of amazing how these things tie together, how they sequence themselves through. Of all the miracles that he did, why do you suppose the first two miracles happened at the same place? Although in the second one, the enactment of power actually happened somewhere else. But we're told at the beginning of this second miracle that these two miracles are linked together. And then rather amazingly, we find that miracle three and miracle six happen in the exact same place. You can see how you begin to engage with this thing. You're like, whoa, I, I hadn't really thought about this. And it brings a sort of a sense of wonder to your heart. Why is it that the first miracle happens at probably is it one of the happiest or, or, or most social of human events? I mean, 2,000 years later, we still understand the joy of a wedding, don't we? And getting together and having a wonderful time and, you know, enjoying the food and the feasting and the fellowship and all those type of things. So that's the first one. And the last one occurs at maybe one of the most difficult of human experiences. It occurs in a graveyard and a bereavement. And God does a miracle in each one. These are very life things, aren't they? And God is speaking into them. Anyways, we go on. In chapter 5, we find a man who, <coughs> who is impotent, I guess perhaps is the word. It, 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 maybe the word is better paralyzed or powerless. Um, he's been lying there for 38 years beside the the pool of Bethesda, and he can't walk. He can't get into the pool. And so the lead Lord Jesus comes along and heals him. In chapter 6, we have the feeding of the 5,000, which uh, is also, I think, a, a, must be a, a critical miracle that God wants us to think about because it's the only miracle that occurs in all four of the Gospels. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk about it as well. And then John talks about it too. None of the other miracles are mentioned more than in three different of the Gospels. Then we have a blind man, or sorry, walking in water, occurs also in John chapter 6, uh, follows immediately after the feeding of the 5,000, 5,000 men, probably were 20 or 25, maybe 30,000 people that were there. After that, Jesus walks on water. In John chapter 9, we find ourselves um, hearing the story about a blind man who is healed. And then in chapter 11, we have this wonderful story of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And then the final miracle is the resurrection of Christ in John chapter 20. Now I'm going to skip over the next little bit here, which uh, I think we'll just, and let's go to the first one. Let's read the story. I haven't got too many minutes left here, but let's... Uh, do that, although I think probably most of you know it. But John chapter 2, I'm beginning at verse 1. And the third day there was a marriage of Cana in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they lacked wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what have I to do with you? My hour is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, and they each contained two or three firkins apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and bear it unto the governor of the feast, and they took it to him. And when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and he did not know from where it had come, but the servants who drew the water out knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man at the beginning sets forth good wine, and when, when, and when people have well drunk, then that which is worse. But you have kept the choicest 
wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus at Cana of Galilee, and he manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. Wow. And I put a little note up here on the screen, Zechariah chapter 10 and verse 7. You can take your blue letter Bible or whatever uh, Bible study help you like to use and do a little search on wine. And you'll find that there are a number of passages in the New Testament or in the, the scriptures that refer to wine as symbolic of joy. And that it's a picture to us of the joy of life. And certainly when we come to this story, we find that this was a joyful occasion. Uh, first time weddings in the time of the Lord Jesus were held on Wednesdays. And the reason they held it on Wednesdays, if it was a second time wedding, it was generally held on Thursdays. I guess that was because they knew what was coming and didn't need as much time to get excited. But um, it was held on Wednesday. And the reason they said that was because they wanted to give it enough time from Sabbath so that the celebrations didn't spill over of three days and find its ways to the Sabbath. They said to themselves, do you know what? You should be able to have a party and if it lasts a couple of days, you know, that's enough. But we don't want it to come on to the Sabbath. So you can see that, and any of you, if you've seen in a movie or something like that, a Jewish wedding, you see them crunching glasses and throwing people in the air. And I have a suspicion it was much the same thing. And we have some Indian folks at the assembly that I'm at. And if there's anything I know about Indian people, they love going to weddings. Somebody said they were going to Houston for a wedding, and I said, oh, we'll have a great time. I said, is it just going to be a small one or something? And he said, yeah, no, no, not very big, not very big. Just probably 800 people. And I was like, wow. So we all know about weddings and about excitement and enthusiasm. And so here we are in this story, and I've given the title of this little miracle because we're thinking about how this miracle is going to speak practically into our life. And I think this is a miracle of transformation to joy. Now, I've put some things down on the page here that I think we should work our way through just about the miracle in general, and then we'll focus in on this idea of transformation of joy. It's a rather remarkable little miracle, isn't it? And the more you think about it, the more things kind of come to your mind and you think, whoa, I never really thought about that. So first of all, we know that it was an important social event. It was one of those occasions that might be termed sort of the height of, uh, of human happiness, getting together and celebrating love and getting together and celebrating with family and friends. And you can imagine for these dusty little towns uh, 2,000 years ago that a wedding was a wonderful thing to look forward to. So here we are in a situation like that. And uh, if you read Alfred Eidersheim or some of these books that give you a little bit of cultural insights into, you know what, I didn't turn, did I? There we go. I told you it was going to happen. If you read Alfred Eidersheim, who tried to, to give you a little bit of insight into what these cultural events and social events were around the time of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will discover that not only was a wedding a happy time and a wonderful time, but that it was a time of great social responsibility for the families who were putting on the wedding. Um, he talks in his book, uh, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, that there are records of people who sort of had a failing regarding a wedding and that people brought it up even years down the line. You know, remember Bill and Sue's wedding? Oh, wonderful time, wonderful time. Ah, uh, yeah, but you know what? They didn't have enough gas for the barbecues. And, you know, there just wasn't enough hot dogs at the end. And, oh, yes, oh, what a tragedy. And, you know, there was this real consciousness that people were thinking this has to be a full-on, all-out affair. You don't want to have anything that's going to echo down in the future and that you come across as having been uh, a little bit hesitant with what sharing things and that it wasn't all that it could have been. Now, one of the things that I see in this story is I actually wonder whether the Lord's mother wasn't involved in the social aspects of this wedding. Because clearly a large segment of the wedding did not know anything about the fact that they had run out of wine. But the Lord's mother seems to have known about it even before the rubber really hit the road, doesn't it? They're running out of wine. 
she says. And the guy who was in charge sort of of the whole feast or the dignitary that was there, he had no conception of what was going on. In fact, the Lord says it was really only the servants that seemed to be aware of things. So if the Lord's mother was involved in this social event, not only was there a sense of, well, this social event could turn out to be disastrous, but it had a personal connection to the Lord himself, doesn't it? And so he came, or she came to the Lord, and she said, um, you know what? We are running out of wine. And we come across a very curious sort of conversation that occurs between the Lord and his mother. And uh, she comes and says they're running out of wine, and, and, and he almost seems, what he says seems a little bit cold almost, or abrupt. You know, what does that have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. And in a sense, you get the sense that he's saying, you know what, this doesn't really have anything to do with me. And yet she turns around and goes to the servants and says, whatever he says to you, do. Now that wouldn't have been what I would have said after he said that to me. But amazingly, a few minutes later, he actually does do something about it. Now, how do you piece that whole thing together? It's, it is a bit confusing, isn't it? A lot of times when you hear someone speak on it or you read into a, um, a commentary on it, you're so excited to hear what this person has to say about it, and then they never really touch on it. It's kind of like, well, that's an odd thing, isn't it? Let's press on to something that's easier. Here's a suggestion that I have. I, I don't know, but I just was thinking about this one day. Um, this is clearly a transitional moment in the life of the Lord Jesus. Things, things are now going to get public. Could I put it that way? We're told a little later on that this was the first miracle and things really ramped up from here. Up to this point, I believe that the Lord Jesus had been the absolute perfect son for both his mother and his father. We read in Luke chapter 2, for instance, at the end of that chapter, that after they left, <coughs> they had gone up to Jerusalem, you remember, and Jesus stayed behind talking to the learned individuals. And it says, after they got him, they went back up to where they lived, and the Lord lived in subjection to his parents. He humbled himself and was subject to them. Now, a lot of commentators believe that by this time, Jacob had, or uh, sorry, Joseph had died, and that Mary was a widow at this point and raising these at least seven children. And the Lord Jesus probably had stepped in and taken a lot of the leadership from Joseph. But it strikes me that at this moment, at this transitional moment, the Lord was letting Mary know that he was moving out from underneath her authority and he was stepping out into the part of his life where he was looking directly to his heavenly father for authority. And so that while he was going to do this and while it was going to satisfy her desire and what she was looking for, that while he was perhaps on a certain level doing it for her, this actually was something that was in perfect accordance with his father's will. And what he was doing from that point forward, as he says numerous times in the Gospel of John, that he and his father were going to be united together in thought, action, and motivation as to what they were doing. And so it makes a certain amount of sense when you think of the story that way, that he's just laying that out to her and letting her know it. Okay, we're down to seven minutes here. Um, the story is a great one, isn't it? Um, to communicate to us the ultimate emptiness of what the world has to offer. And I think that's, it's fitting really that this is the first miracle. Because I think a lot of people come to Christ when there is a, res a recognition in their hearts that what they have pursue been pursuing in pursuit of happiness, joy, whatever it may be, that it hasn't turned out as they had hoped it would. That's the reason why I became a Christian. I grew up in a Christian home, um, lovely parents, many, many benefits along that line. But as I got into my teens, I was convinced that mom and dad were keeping me from things and that um, a lot of the things that they sort of said, this is not the right thing to do, those are not really great people to be hanging around with, that they didn't understand and that they were trying to limit me from the joy and happiness that I was pursuing in life. And so 
recognizing that I was far more intelligent than them at that time, I went off and pursued those things. And I'm grateful that it didn't take me long to come to an end and to be sitting in a party one evening and looking at all the carryings-ons going around me and having been pursuing this lifestyle for a couple of years and sitting there and thinking to myself, if this is all that there is to life, I don't want to live anymore. And I literally think if there hadn't been someplace else that I could have gone to seek an answer, which I did, I actually think I, I might very well have been tempted to commit suicide that night. The depth of emptiness and purposelessness that I found. And if anything, now that was when I was a kid growing up, if anything we find that society today is a multiplication of those type of feelings, isn't it? We live in a society that pursues, you know, whatever itch they have, they scratch it. Nothing is sacred anymore. Just pursue it with all your heart and have the experience and enjoy the pleasure and accumulate all that you can. And I don't know if there's ever been a time in history when, certainly in the West, when so many people have had so much and yet so many people are absolutely empty and poverty-stricken on the inside. Apart from cancer drugs, um, the top prescriptions, half a dozen of them in North America, are all related with emotion-altering type of things. I'm not saying that there perhaps wouldn't be benefit for some people in those things, but you can see why People are pursuing those things because they just aren't finding what they thought they would find. And so here we are, and this wonderful party was going on, and no matter how great the wine was, and the guy who was there said, you know what, the, the, at the start, you, people usually set out good wine, and I'm sure he enjoyed that good wine at the start. But the interesting thing is, no matter how attractive it may be, ultimately it will run So it does run out. And now what are we going to do? How are we going to help this situation? Well, there's five water, sorry, six water pots made out of stone sitting there. And before they all came, they had all washed themselves, you know, according to the Old Testament purification rites. And these pots were quite large. And they were clearly empty by the time the story gets really going here. So they had used all that water to wash themselves. So the fact that they had ritually tried to purify themselves really didn't have any bearing on whether the wine ran out either, did it? And a lot of people think as they go through life and they're seeking for purpose and they're seeking for happiness, they're seeking for joy, and they find out that some of these things are running out, they begin to realize that, you know, Maybe what I need to be is a better person. You know, maybe I need to come out to New Life Bible Chapel every week, or maybe I need to be good to my neighbor or whatever it is. But you know, those pots were empty too, weren't they? There was nothing of value left in them anymore. And as I go around and the odd time I get a chance to talk to people about salvation and evangelism and these different things, I think what I find... Um, an answer that is given to me probably most frequently when I sort of challenge people, are you going to heaven or do you hope to go to heaven when you come to the end of their life? And oftentimes their hands go like this and they say, well, I'm hoping so. And I say, well, why? And they say, well, I'm hoping that in a coming day, my good works will outweigh my bad works and somehow God will be pleased with that and I'll find myself in heaven. The scripture says that that's a false hope. There's no hope in trying to work your way into heaven. And those water pots sitting there empty were a silent testimony that external purification wasn't the answer to this situation either. Um, I find it interesting, well, our time's gone here. I find it interesting that the world's pattern is perfectly reflected in this story in that the good wine was given at the start. Have you experienced that in your life? I did. You know, you get going out in life, and maybe you thought a bit along the lines that I did. Maybe you had good parents and things, and uh, maybe even if they weren't Christians, maybe they tried to instill some morals in you. And yet you sort of felt, you know what, the real joy of life is just getting out there and doing whatever I please. 
and I'm going to satisfy every whim and lust and desire that I have. And at the beginning of that process, there's sort of a feeling of liberty, isn't there? And you've been held back by all those things that were restricting you, but now that's broken out. And so now I can kind of do what I want. And at the beginning, we get this illusion that we're living in liberty, but we don't realize that these things that we're pursuing that are contrary to God's will for us, they are actually winding chains around us. And even as we don't realize it, we're becoming more and more constricted. And often what starts out very promising, in the end, you get the bitter wine that is served. And that is very true. And I've seen many a life that has been destroyed by that sequence of circumstances, thinking somehow my own brother struggles even to this day with substance abuse and various things. I said to him one time, what, when did this all get started? He said, I was 12 years old. I went into the arena and there was a bunch of boys there and they were smoking some dope and they were older than me, but they insisted I try it and thought it was great fun to pass this on to a 12 year old boy. And he said, I wanted to fit in. I wanted to be a part of it. I thought it was a good thing. And there's the good wine at the start, isn't it? And now all these years later, there he is, limited and in bondage to these things that he wasn't able to break the chains. There's lots more to the story. The, the good news here is that God's joy is best and it lasts. That's wonderful, isn't it? You have kept the word that is used here. You have kept the choicest wine till now. It just keeps getting better and better. It is the best and it continues to last. Now, I need to get on to the next year and just finish things up. I'm going to go real quick. Here's a question that I have. Um, how much wine did they have? To me, this is at the heart of the story. All these other things are kind of obvious if you think long enough about them. But I have thought about this miracle for a long time, and I think to myself, I wonder if the heart of the story isn't about those six water pots and how much wine they held. In other words, how much joy was there? Well, there was as much as they had capacity for, isn't there? How full did they fill the jugs? To the brim. Boy, they must have been mighty grateful for that when it turned to wine, wouldn't they? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> you know, I was getting tired. But I kept going. And I'm glad I did. Because look what it's full of now possibly 750 bottles of divine wine. You ever wonder what it must have tasted like? Like I know that wouldn't have gone over very long at that wedding in Houston, but I have a suspicion that the amount of wine that was produced here, I think it actually lasted beyond the wedding. Do you not think that it would? I mean, at this point, they'd gone through the whole supply that they'd physically provided. And now they've got 600 liters more, at a minimum, of wine. And it's wonderful wine. So they have this wine. I have a suspicion it lasted beyond the wedding. But it is important, isn't it, for us to think about how this happened. It's really important, I think. I think it's at the heart of the story. It happened because some people were obedient. That's why it happened. And it was hard work. And it wasn't easy. But they did what they were asked because the Lord had asked them. We, um, we live out in the country. I cut down a bunch of trees and I trim them up and I keep the, you know, the trunks kind of thing for wood and various things like that. But we had a massive pile of brush 
kind of off on this little field up behind our place, or little paddock, I guess you'd call it. And it was right around the time of the Fort McMurray fires. And I thought, you know, I'm going to burn this. I'm tired of this. So I lit it up. Of course, I didn't realize that under the green grass, everything was dry, that the trees were actually quite dry. And this fire went up. And I'm telling you, the flames were 30, 35 feet in the air. I was having a heart attack, thinking to myself, the local newspaper is going to have a headline that says, local idiot tries to, you know, show solidarity with Fort McMurray by burning down his house and his forest and the next guy's house and all this stuff. And I'm there at these flames, and I got Louise out, and she's at the top, out at the side of the house, and, um, you know, filling five-gallon pails, and I am running with those pails trying to put that fire out. And about three quarters of the way in, my Fitbit just exploded. It just couldn't take the stress anymore. And it was done. <coughs> and honestly, at the end of it, I think I just laid face down in the grass, didn't I? I was like, I am done. And I thought about these guys drawing 600 liters of water out of a well and the temptation to cut a corner. But they kept going and they kept going, and they kept going till it was filled to the brim. And God rewarded their obedience by giving them 600 liters of wine that came from it. The scripture talks about certain things that God takes joy in. Do you know what the very first item that the scriptures mentions that God takes joy in, and there's only half a dozen of them in the scripture, it says that God takes joy when his people are obedient. Now, this is a pretty basic message today at the end of it all, isn't it? But I think it's profound and fundamental to success in the Christian life. Life. If you want to have joy in your life, obedience to God is the foundation that it's built on. And it will involve hard work. And it will involve setting aside certain things that might be more pleasurable or more sort of expedient at the time or more in tune with what others are doing. But that's not your choice because you want joy in life. And you believe that if you will be obedient, there will be a reward that will come at the end of it. And sure enough, this story tells us that it's true. Anyways, my time is uh, done here. I am just gonna take you to the questions that I had. Oh, maybe this thing quits at a certain time, does it? Sort of says, no, nope, you're not going any further. The email that I got from the, your brother that um, just kind of made me aware of things here said sometimes there are questions at the end. So I'm gonna leave these questions with you. And uh, you can think about some of the other things that I maybe was gonna say, but maybe you got it, saw them as I quickly went through there. Number one. Uh, am I working at understanding the Bible in a broader fashion? A lot of times our approach to the scripture, as I said, is very specific and that, that's needful and necessary and helpful and it's utterly valid. I'm not trying to say anything against that. But are we trying to engage with the scripture in a bigger way and just enjoy it on the next level up, if I could put it that way, and see that there are other ways to appreciate and understand and enjoy God's word? Do I truly have God's joy in my life? I meet a lot of Christians who don't, actually. And there are times when I feel that way too. Like I want something more in life. And that doesn't mean that everything's going well, but I want to feel that sort of basic fundamental joy. Do I have God's joy in my life? Well, if I don't, um, you know, perhaps I'm not being as fully obedient as I need to be. But anyways, that's a question that perhaps can open things up. And then the last one, do I rejoice in what God rejoices in? We never got a chance to look at it, but uh, John chapter 15 and verse 11, Jesus says, these things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. So that verse tells me that there's at least two different joys ticking along inside of me at the same time. My joy and his joy. And he says, I've spoken these things to you so that my joy would remain in you and that your joy would be full. 
do we rejoice in the things that God takes joy in? Because if we do, his joy will be in us, won't they? Anyways, my apologies for going over time, and uh, let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for this time we could spend here together the, this afternoon, this morning, this afternoon, and grateful for your word and for this wonderful little story and uh, for all the truths that come out of it, Father, and we've just kind of scratched the surface a little bit. But we pray, Father, that we wouldn't just be hearers of the word, but that we would be doers as well. And um, just thank you for this gathering of your people and uh, for the testimony that they're maintaining here. And I ask that you would encourage them and strengthen them as they carry on the work here. And uh, bless each one, Father. And we just uh, look forward to um, seeking to serve you this week as we head out into the reality of, of, of life, Father. We pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Uh, thank you again for the invitation. Very much enjoyed it. And um, We'll uh, finish with that. And if you have want any more information about Upward Bound, I'd be more than happy to talk to you about it uh, before we head off.